Hello, ladies, and welcome to the Amazing Bible.Book Club. I am Julie Callio, your host, and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to tune in with me today. If by chance you want to contact me, you can do that at theab.bc.pc at gmail.com. Today we are looking at Paul's first letter to the church that was in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a seaport off the Aegean Sea, plus it was off the Via Agnesia, which was one of the main highways that extended east-west from Asia Minor, Turkey, to Rome. This city is mentioned in Acts chapter 17. This was on Paul's second missionary journey around 50 to 51 AD. He was with Silas, Silvanus was his Roman name, and Timothy. We learn in Acts that his time there was short, just three Sabbaths. In verse 6 of Acts 17, Paul and his companions are described as these men who have turned the world upside down. This city had a Jewish synagogue, and as was Paul's custom, he went there first to give the Jews a chance of seeing that Jesus was their Messiah. As it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 3, Paul told them, This Jesus, who I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some Jews were persuaded, and some God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women believed. This was the start of the church, but some Jews became jealous and joined with some wicked men, creating a mob, and then at night the brethren sent Paul and Silas away at night, and they went to Berea. From Berea, Paul went to Athens, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Acts chapter 17, verse 14. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. Paul then went to Corinth, where he stayed for a year and six months. In verse 5 of Acts 18 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, we learn that Timothy and Silas met Paul in Corinth. It was during this time that Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and Timothy took it to them approximately A.D. 51. Paul sent this letter to encourage the church to stay faithful in persecutions. There also seemed to be concern about what happens to Christians that die before Christ comes. And Paul taught about Christ's return. This was one of Paul's earliest letters. Like his other letters, the first half, chapters 1 through 3, deal with doctrine, plus here there's a lot of remembering and looking back. And then the second half, chapters 4 and 5, deal with now that we know this truth, this is how to live, also known as Christian ethics. An interesting thing about this book, all five chapters include the reminder that Christ is coming Chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and then chapter 5, verse 23. Now that we have the background of this letter, let's dive into the scriptures. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks. We see that Paul does not need to defend his apostleship because the church loves Paul. 
the listing of Sylvanus, Silas, and Timothy helped to place this letter during Paul's second missionary journey. Malcolm O. Talbert said, It is not the church belonging to the Thessalonians. It is the congregation of God's people composed of believing Thessalonians. In other words, ladies, one of the problems of the churches in America is that we think that it is our church. And many times we forget that it is actually God's church and that we get to be a part of it. Robert L. Thomas said, It should not be overlooked that the deity of the Son is taught here, combining God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ under one preposition demonstrates Jesus' equality with the Father and consequently his deity. The word grace is the Christian Greek greeting and peace is the typical Jewish greeting. In Paul's thanksgiving of the church, he constantly remembered to pray for them. He remembered their work, singular of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, which is bound in their knowing of election and love of God. Here we have faith, hope, and love. Ladies, there is great comfort when we know that we are loved and chosen by God. The rest of chapter one, here Paul does not say when we came to you, but he said when our gospel came to you, it came not with word only, but with power and the Holy Spirit and with much assurance and joy. They were honorable and the church imitated them even during persecution. They therefore became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, which is Greece and beyond. Verses 9 through 10, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. Here we see the past. They turned. We see the present. They serve and we see the future. They wait. A friend of mine in college told me that so many times we think of wait as standing and doing nothing, but he reminded me that there is another kind of wait, like one who waits on tables. They are actively serving the Lord while they are waiting for Christ. If you remember, when we read through the Old Testament, the coming of the Lord was called the great and terrible day of the Lord. We talked about those who believe in Christ, it will be a great day. But to those who do not, it is a terrible day when they face the wrath of God. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul defends his integrity. From this, we deduce that Paul had some opponents in Thessalonica, but we do not know for sure if they were the Jews that caused the riot or other people. Paul starts off, For you yourselves know that our visit with you had results. He wanted the church to remember the truth of their time together. He reminded them that they were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please men, but rather God who examines or tests our hearts. Verse 4. The word for test is a present participle, which means it is continuous examination and testing of our hearts. He went on to say that we did not come with flattering speech, greedy motives, or seeking glory. 
They also did not come to burden them, but instead they were gentle, like a breastfeeding mother who nurtures her child. They cherish and care so much for them that they not only share the gospel, but their very own lives with them. Then in verses 11 and 12, Paul compared themselves like a father with their own children who encouraged, comfort, and implored them to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Herschel H. Hobbes said, worthy carries the idea of weight. Their life should balance with the character of God to walk worthily of God. In verse 13, we see that the thanksgiving of the letter is continuing. Also, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you receive the message, the logos, the word about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, logos, word, but as it truly is, the message, logos, word of God which also works continuous action, works effectively in you believers. Verse 14 says, Just as the Jews who became Christians suffered by their fellow Jews, now the Thessalonians suffer from their own people. Then Paul continued by saying that the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they persecuted them and hindered the gospel to be reached to the Gentiles, which adds to the number of their sins and wrath has overtaken them completely. Verse 16b. Verses 17 and 18 talk of how Paul had to leave suddenly and how he wanted to go back and visit, but Satan hindered them. Then Paul said in verses 19 and 20 that the believers at Thessalonica are their hope, joy, and crown. This crown is a Stephanos. It's a victor's crown from running a race. This is different than a diadem or a king's crown. Their faithfulness will give Paul a reason for boasting when the Lord Jesus comes. Chapter 3 continues explaining why they did not visit them again, but instead he sent Timothy because everywhere Paul goes, there is persecution. He was worried about them, but once Timothy came back with news of their faith, love, and good thoughts toward Paul, he was encouraged. Paul continued to give thanks for them, and then he prayed for them to have direction from our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Also that the Lord would cause them to increase and overflow with love for each other and everyone like Paul does for them. Then Paul prayed, verse 13, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of the saints. Amen. Herschel H. Hobbes said, In the New Testament, salvation is used for regeneration, sanctification, and glorification. One is regenerated instantaneously. In that moment, he is sanctified as he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He should grow in that state, which is called sanctification. At the Lord's return, he will be glorified, including the bodily resurrection and the sum total of rewards and glory in heaven. This is the full redemption mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. It is to this that Paul looked in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 13. Malcolm O. Talbert said, None of the Lord's people will be missing at the parousia, 
The word parousia is another term for the second coming of Christ. The Greek definition means to be present or presence. Now chapter 4 begins with how we are to live our lives knowing that Christ is coming back. The verb walk in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, has the meaning of how a person lives one's life. Paul said they were to please God with their lives. Herschel H. Hobbes said, so Paul had charged them with respect to both negative and positive living. Simply to abstain from wrong is not enough. Christians should always do the right. Here in chapter 4, verse 3, and then in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul clearly says, this is God's will. Ladies, sometimes we want to know God's will for our lives, like the big picture, when the small picture, the everyday walk, is crucial in pleasing the Lord. And many of these things Paul lays out for us in these last two chapters. Verses 3 through 7 deal with the area of being sanctified. And here Paul is referring to abstaining from sexual immorality. Because not only is this a sin against man, but also against God who gives us the Holy Spirit who's dwelling within us. It is a way of defrauding a brother or sister in Christ. The opposite of that is to love one another. And this love is agape love, which is doing what is best for the other person and not looking for just satisfying ourselves. The church was doing that, but Paul encouraged them to do it even more. Then verses 11 and 12 say, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Ladies, this is one area that many of us need to work on. We are not to be busybodies getting into other people's affairs. Boy, I wonder what Paul would say if he had Facebook or social media to deal with. We are also called to keep our own affairs in order. Now, let me quote to you from Haley's Bible Handbook about this next section. The Lord's Second Coming, verses 13 through 18. Here we come to the main topic of the epistle. Its mention in every chapter implies that Paul must have given it particular emphasis in his preaching at Thessalonica. Though it is commonly spoken of as the Lord's coming or appearing, it is specifically called second coming in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28. Jesus' word again in John chapter 14 verse 3 means a second time. So it is perfectly proper and scriptural to speak of it as the second coming. The Thessalonian epistles are commonly regarded as the earliest written New Testament books. They are about the Lord's coming again. The last of the New Testament books is Revelation, of which the final word is, I come quickly, even so come Lord Jesus, Revelation 22 verse 20. Thus the New Testament begins and thus it ends. End of quote. The issue here is not a doubt about the Lord's coming again, but about how and what about the believers that have died, 
will they rise again? Paul starts in verse 13, telling them he does not want them to be uninformed about the believers who have died because believers do not grieve like the rest of the world because we have hope. Verses 14 and 15, since Jesus died and rose again, when he comes, he will bring with him those who have, quote, fallen asleep through Jesus. This also helps affirm that those who have died are with Christ now. Paul seems to declare that he had a revelation from the Lord, which we do not have reference to. But Paul said in verse 16, that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Herschel Hobbes said the fact that command, call, and trumpet are each preceded in Greek by N-E-N shows that these will come in sequence. Verse 17, Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord. Then Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Robert L. Thomas said Paul believed and had taught his converts that the next event on the prophetic calendar for them was their being gathered to Christ. Paul continues explaining in chapter 5 that they already know about the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. People will say peace and security, but destruction comes on them like labor pains and they will not escape. For believers, however, we are sons of the light and sons of the day, not of the night or of the darkness. Now in verses 6 through 8, Paul is not saying that Christians are never to sleep physically, but he's talking about spirituality. We are not to get drunk, but we must be sober. Put on the armor of faith and love on our chest and put on the helmet of the hope of salvation since this letter was written before Ephesians, we can see how Paul developed this concept when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Also here, Paul had the three virtues of faith, hope, and love, which he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, where he said that the greatest of these is love. Why is it the greatest? Because someday we will not need faith. We will not need hope because both of these will be fulfilled. But love, love lasts forever. Believers in Christ are not destined for wrath, but salvation through Jesus who died for us. So that if we are alive or if we are asleep, meaning dead in the flesh, we will live forever with him. Ladies, these are words to be encouraged by. Then Paul goes more into how we are to live. We honor our leaders, be at peace with believers, warn the lazy, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Do not repay evil for evil to anyone, but pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every form of evil. Verses 12 through 22. Then Paul closes with his blessing. Verses 23 and 24. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Henry H. Haley said, Christ redeems the entire human personality. The language certainly contemplated the resurrection of the body. Then Paul ends with asking for prayer and for them to greet each other and to read this letter to all believers. Verse 28, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Herschel Hobbes said he ended the epistle as he began it with grace. This was one of Paul's great words, grace in redemption and in living. So ladies, have you heard the Lord speaking to you today? Please don't harden your heart. Instead, let's be women of faith and hope who hear, pray, love, and obey. Until next time, and thank you so much for listening.